Uh, Lamentations chapter number one, please. Uh, last Wednesday, after just about a year, we finished up the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and now we're going to spend what, as far as I am aware at this point, the next six weeks looking at this book, the book of Lamentations. I don't know. <clears throat> I was asked recently what all I have preached through and what I haven't. And I don't have much record of having done anything in Lamentations, so <clears throat> I put it on the I put it on my bucket list, <clears throat> which for me is all the books I want to try and get through uh, before my time is gone. Let's pray, and we will look at it as we work through it this evening. We will read through it. Let's pray, and we'll we'll begin, Father. We pray, of course, for your help to understand this book, to appreciate its value to us who live so far away from those, those events. <clears throat> and yet they are so theologically significant to us, for they are yet a further reminder of what you love and what you hate of the firmness and authority of your word, even to your own children. And they function as an admonition to us in the church. And so we pray your blessing and help. In Jesus' name, amen. So Lamentations <clears throat> chapter number one. Uh, just a little bit by way of introduction, on the off chance you're not very familiar with Lamentations, they are beyond any shadow of a doubt, humanly written by Jeremiah. Um, that is particularly obvious at the end of the third lamentation. And they are just that. They are laments. They are dirges. They are sad, sad songs written after the Babylonian destruction of literally the nation of Israel. The political system was in shambles, well, non-existent at that point. The religious system was dismantled. The economic system was destroyed. The geography of the land was ruined. The vast majority of the people were carried away to another country. The, you know, several years ago when COVID first hit, and we all hunkered down for shelter. On those rare occasions when you go out, Omaha was like a ghost town. But that is absolutely nothing compared to the barrenness of the city of Jerusalem that Jeremiah is witnessing. The only people left in the land are the very poor, and they're left only because... The king of Babylon found no use for them in Babylon. They were a drain on the system, and so they can fend for themselves in their homeland. Unlike the book of Job, in which the author 
does not know why he is suffering. He knows that he is suffering. And he and his friends are making the merry-go-round of reasoning behind the suffering. The cause of the suffering is very clear. It is very plainly spelled out in in the book of Lamentations. And in fact, as we will see this evening, the cause of suffering in Lamentations is none other than God himself. This is his work. This is his hand in action. There are five Lamentations. Each of them is, well, four of them, one, two, four, and five, are 22 verses long. And the third is 66 verses long. And that is because every one of the verses begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They are acrostic alphabet dirges, or what are sometimes called ABC poems. Uh, and the third lamentation, each ver- three verses are started with the first with the same letter. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so. That is the way that it goes. 22 verses, one for each letter of the alphabet. One of the things that we might do, and we don't really have any insight on this, but one of the things that is thought-provoking and thought-generating is to think about the way that God has inspired his word. That this is an inspired book is beyond any dispute. It was written ultimately by God, and like all scripture, is breathed out by him. But it is also breathed out by him as he moves along his holy men who wrote it. And one possibility is that Bible books were written rather mechanically. That God, in effect, said, write this word, in, write this word, the, and write this word, beginning. And write this word, God. That really doesn't seem to be the way that most inspired books happen. They are also the product, fully the product of human beings. And so what apparently we have here is a man who has given a tremendous amount of thought, not only to what he has seen, the devastation that he has seen, but the way that he wants to make a record of it. That he has sat down and written out these poems, these dirges. And it is also a little bit helpful to us to think that there is no offense to our sad emotions, to categorize them or to think about them systematically. Our our sorrows do not need to be random, helter-skelter, out-of-control emotions to be real suffering. And in fact, Dale Ralph Davis, who is very helpful in the Old Testament, points out that these acrostic laments are probably not for the purposes of aiding memory. That's frequently the way we deal with acrostics like Psalm 119, they aid memory. But rather what they do is provide a systematic catalog of Israel's sufferings. They They are a collection of the suffering of the people of Israel from A to Z. Every imaginable scenario, every imaginable suffering 
Every imaginable response is contemplated in these five laments. This evening we'll turn our attention to the first of them in which we have two major thoughts. The, 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 The lament falls quite easily into two equal segments, verses 1 through 11 and verses 12 through 22. And one of the reasons that I would make that distinction and one of the ways that you can see the distinction is not imposed on the text is that verses 1 through 11 are written primarily from the third person perspective. But verses 12 through 22 are written primarily from the first person perspective. So let's read together first of all the first 11 verses. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces? How has she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. And the idea there is nations. She dwells among the nations. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. And they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts, she remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully, she had no comforter, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider for I am become vile. So the first 11 verses, again, not exclusively, but primarily from the third person perspective, and what they do is summon us to feel Israel's anguish. We are invited to enter into this terrible emotional trauma that Israel is experiencing. 
One of the things Jeremiah wants us to do is to grieve with her, excuse me, over all that she has lost. Verse number one, like a widow who has lost her husband. Verse number three, she has lost her homeland. She's lost her house. She has lost her husband. In verses 4 and 10, she has lost her religion. Her community, her fellowship, her religious rituals, her access to her God. She has lost her children. Verse number 1 and verse number 5. She's like a widow. She is a stateless person. She has lost her religious liberty. She has lost her children. She has lost her leaders. Verse number six. She has lost her reputation. Verses seven through nine. She was once hailed as one of the great cities in the world. She has now, verse number one, become tributary. The expression there, she came down wonderfully. Excuse me. She came down wonderfully. Does not mean that it was a beautiful collapse. It means it was a spectacular collapse. It was breathtaking, the speed and the way in which the nation disintegrated. As if you were watching a video of a building in which the workers had been setting charges and laying running wires for months, and then at long last all was connected and the button was pushed and the whole thing just fell down upon itself. Spectacular. Do you have a question? She is the city. What city? Jerusalem. And what are they referring to? What do you mean, what are they referring to? Yeah, the the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the Babylonian captivity, the whole thing. The whole thing. It's right? I mean, the Babylonians came in, they broke down the wall, they broke they first they desecrated the temple, which, you know, there's all kinds of theological discussion about that and what that you know, is that Daniel, but it, but it isn't Daniel at this point. So the Babylonians just come in and they just totally desecrate the place. Um, if, the, if they had things like B-52 stratofortresses, they would have bombed Jerusalem out of existence. So that's what we're talking about. This is, this is the collapse of the whole thing. So Jeremiah invites us to grieve with her over what she has lost and to grieve with her over her isolation. Not only has she lost everything, folks, she is completely alone. She is completely alone. Look at verse number two. She weepeth sore in the night, her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers hath she hath none to comfort her. Now, again, there's, there's a whole history to that. Because one of the things that God has condemned regularly and systematically 
is the fact that is <clears throat> excuse me is the fact that Israel keeps replacing him with other lovers with other nations you you ran after the Assyrians you ran after the Babylonians you you ran after these people you ran after these this group of people this is one of the ways in which he describes himself verse number 9 she has none to comfort her she has no comfort her <clears throat> There is no one to put their arm around her shoulder, so to speak, and offer her any consolation. She is completely alone. Verse number 16, the, 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 we haven't got to that yet, but the comforter is very far away. Verse number 17, there is none to comfort her. Verse number 21, there is none to comfort her. How doth the city sit solitary? She has lost everything. There is no one to commiserate with her. And then you are invited to share her misery. Her priests, verse number four, groan. That's what the word sai means. They groan. I mean, <clears throat> if you went home after church tonight, folks, and your house was laying collapsed, and everything that you owned in it was buried under a pile of rubble, you would perhaps groan. We probably all would. Her priests groan. The city itself, verse number 8 and verse 21 and 22, sigh. And the people who are left, verse 11, sigh. So the first 11 verses of this lament, the introduction, so to speak, to this short book of Lamentations is one long chronicle of grief and distress and disaster and sadness just piled on top of each other. I used to know a guy who would say, <clears throat> things are never so bad, but what they can't get worse. But for Jerusalem and therefore the nation of Israel, it is about as bad as it can get. Now we will see <clears throat> in chapter 3 that it is not as bad as it could have been. But it's just about as bad as it could be. And again, folks, it's a little bit like the book of Job because Job lost almost everything too. But Job did not understand why he had lost it. Jeremiah knows exactly why Israel has lost everything. So the first 11 verses summon us to enter into Israel's grief. Let's turn our attention then to verse 12 through 22, the second major section of this chapter. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above hath he set fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. He hath spread a net for my feet, he hath turned me back, he hath made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fall, the Lord hath delivered me into their hands. 
from whom I am not able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. For these things I weep. Mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands. There is none to comfort her. The Lord, ha- <clears throat> the Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversary should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and mine elders gave up the ghost in the city, while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. Mine heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth, at home there is as death. They have heard that I sigh, there is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou will bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. So verses 12 through 22 then summon us to listen to the truth. And what's happening here, folks, don't, don't misread this. Jeremiah in verses 12 through 22 is speaking on behalf of the city. It won't be until chapter 3 that Jeremiah speaks on behalf of himself. The third lamentation is intensely personal in nature. We will get to that. But here he is speaking on behalf of the city. Some of the things that he describes could not possibly be true about any individual. He is He is ascribing a human voice to the city of Jerusalem. He is ascribing a humanity in the entire lamentation. He is ascribing a humanity to the nation of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem, as if it is a living person. A living person who has lost a spouse, who has lost a child, who has lost a home, who has lost respect, who is enduring the ridicule of all around. This collapse, folk, doesn't happen in private. It is public. It is a public humiliation. Feel the sorrow. Listen to the truth. Who is responsible for this destruction? Who did it? Who did it? God. Israel's covenant God, Jehovah. This is all the work of Jehovah. Look, for instance, at verse number 5. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies are stronger than she is. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord 
hath afflicted her. For the Lord hath afflicted her. Or verse number 12, the beginning of this section. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? For behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Verse number 13, from above, from where he lives, hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. My bones cannot withstand his heat. He has spread a net for my feet. He has trapped me. My God has set a trap for me. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. Who is responsible for this devastation and this destruction? It is the Lord himself. And the burning of the bones, by the way, folks, is judgment. And again, we will get further perspective on that in the third chapter when Jeremiah talks about the Lord's thinking about what he is doing. How does the Lord feel about this this event? Well, chapter 3 tells us how he feels about it. Verse number 14. The yoke of my transgression is bound by his hand. This is the work of the Lord. They are wreathed. They can come up upon my neck. They, they, are, they are binding me. They are impeding my movement and my freedom and my liberty. I am handcuffed by God's fierce anger. He hath made my strength to fall, middle of verse 14. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands from whom I am not able to rise up. I, my enemies have the advantage of me and I am helpless, completely helpless. And I am helpless because the Lord has made me helpless. 12 through 22, listen to the truth. This is the work of God. Verse number 15, the Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. The Lord took the armies of Israel and made them the losers. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. See, this is one of the reasons, folks. This is not Jeremiah describing his personal situation. This is the city of Jerusalem speaking on behalf of the nation. Our soldiers are dead, and God has handed them over to the enemy. Our armies are powerless because God has handcuffed our armies. All of these things are leading us up to this, folks. Verse 16, for these things I weep. Mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. Who is that comforter, folks? That should be Jehovah. That should be Jehovah. He should be their comforter. He should be the one to come to their aid, to come to their assistance, to come to their rescue. Instead, he has put great distance between himself and his people. When you read the book of Ezekiel, folks, beginning in chapter 10 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, 
and you read about the progression of the Spirit of God leaving the temple, right? He is... He has made his exit. He has made his exit. He is gone. You guys, I mean, it is, it is the declaration. You guys are on your own. I am out of here. You're going to have to fend for yourselves now. Now, there's, again, there's a lot of theology to that, folks, right? Because he's God and he's everywhere and he has a plan for Israel and he superintends the things that happen to them, but... He has handed them over to destruction and he has left their nation. So the God who should be their comforter has become their adversary. Let me just at this point in time make a comment about us. America is not Israel and we cannot just go back into the Old Testament and take all of those promises and all of those events and appropriate them to ourselves. But one thing we do know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that God's dealings with the nation of Israel is a lesson for the church. It's a lesson for the church. And Peter tells us that if judgment should begin or will begin with the house of God, what will be the end for those who don't believe? Right? If God starts dealing harshly with his people, what is it going to look like when he gets around to those who are not his people? You know, folks, it just might be. <clears throat> and I'm speaking now not just to Westwood Heights, but figuratively to all believers that Perhaps the real solution to the leftist agenda is not political after all, but is found in the heartfelt repentance of God's people to really become serious about serving him and worshiping him. Serious about it. Not casual about it, but serious about it. Back to the text. This brings us to the age-old question. Is God unrighteous in the doing of this? I don't understand how a God could do those kinds of things. Well, there's a simple declaration in verse number 18. The Lord is righteous. Again, this is the city of Jerusalem speaking. The Lord is righteous. For I have rebelled against his commandment. The Lord is righteous for I have rebelled. Here I pray you, all my people, behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. Which brings me then, beginning in, well, towards the end of it, verse number 20. As we listen to the truth, if we will respond to the truth, we are brought to one directive. The city's prayer was that God would look at her. Look, for instance, at verse number nine. Her filthiness is in her skirts. 
She remembereth not her last end, therefore she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction. This becomes the prayer of these, of the decimated city. God, look at me. Look at me. Verse number 11, all her people sigh. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. Right? They've sold their jewelry and they've sold their furniture and they've sold their valuables and they've sold their family heirlooms just for a meal. That is how destitute they are. See, O Lord, which, by the way, is the same word as behold. It's the same Hebrew word as behold. See, O Lord, look at me. Look at what you have done. Take pity. This is, this is the plea. Take pity upon us. Take pity upon us. Verses 20 through 22. Behold, O Lord, look at us, God. I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me. I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth. At home there is as death. In foreign affairs, we're being devastated by the sword. And in domestically, we are starving to death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. They are glad that you have done this to us. Remember folks, Jesus said that the day is coming when the people that kill Christians think they're doing a good deed. They think that they're doing God a favor to rid the world of people who believe in him. They're glad that thou hast done it. Thou will bring the day that thou hast called and they shall be like unto me. Look at us, Lord, look at us, Lord, look at us, Lord, and bring upon them, verses 21 and 22, what you have done to us. Bring upon them what you have done to us. And by the way, folks, that is something that will happen because God will destroy the Babylonians with the Persians. That is what he will do. But there will always be some form of Babylon. We see that in the book of Revelation. There will always be some world power who is on the war path against God. And you, of course, know, and I'm just going to call your attention to this. I will not take the time to read it. But Jeremiah 27 predicts that this captivity will last for 70 years and that God will then deliver them And God will ultimately give the decree to Cyrus who will announce the decree that the Israelites may go back into their land. But this is the very early days of the Babylonian captivity. And the the entire nation is in ruins. And the lament is for us to feel her grief and listen to the truth. All right, I'm going to stop there. If you want to take your prayer bulletin out, is there anything that you need to add or update?